Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community practicing the way of Jesus and thirsting for the life he gives. He is risen, friends. You know, one of my jobs as a pastor every Easter is to find a resurrection passage of Scripture to preach on. And I've decided to break all of the pastor rules today. And I'm going to preach on three resurrection passages. And so if I am not here next week and I've lost my license, you'll know why. It's because Ian wore the suit coat and I preached three sermons. But the reason I'm doing that, of course, is the last two Easter's were pandemic Easter's. And we weren't all able to gather together for worship. So today I figured I would preach three Easter sermons. And I promised not to go over 30 minutes for each one of them. And, and the sermon I'm going to preach today is, comes from a sermon I heard a few years ago from one of my favorite preachers, Rich Velotis in Queens, New York. And it involves three resurrection stories from the Gospel of John. Now, the Gospels record 10 post-resurrection appearances by Jesus. There are five post-resurrection appearances by Jesus on Easter. And then there are five more appearances spread out over the next 40 days. And and I find these 10 post-resurrection appearances of Jesus fascinating for a few reasons. One, why only 10? Right? If Jesus was going to show up in his resurrected form, he should do it more than 10 times over 40 days. He should capitalize on his resurrected form. But what I find even more odd is the nature of his appearances. Because Jesus, when he showed up in resurrected form, the risen Jesus, he chose personal interactions over public exhibitions. Instead of 10 nights of highly publicized church meetings, Jesus checked in on his friends. And he engages them in personal conversation. Now, if I was Jesus' PR person, I wouldn't have done it that way. I would say, Jesus, we need to capitalize on these 10 appearances. There's only 10. I don't know why you're doing 10, but you've settled on 10. So we're going to book you 10 stadium events. One of them is going to be higher ground. Nine stadium events in one big, great venue. And we're going to capitalize on these appearances. And then I probably would have hired Luann, and she'd paint our tour bus. We call it the resurrection tour, and she would paint pictures of Jesus levitating off the ground and doing all kinds of miracles. But Jesus didn't do any of that. When the risen Jesus appeared, he chose personal encounters over public events. He checked in on his friends, which I think is good news for you and I because we're his friends. How are we his friends? The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, Jesus is referred to as the friend of sinners. That's you and I. In John, chapter 15, Jesus says to his disciples, I no longer call you servants, but friends. And so if it's true that the risen Jesus finds his friends, then he can find you and I here too. And so we're going to look at three resurrection stories from John's gospel. 
where Jesus finds three of his friends. And these three friends are struggling. One of them is gripped by grief. Another is drowning in doubt. And a third friend is buried by shame. And Jesus meets each one of them in their grief, in their doubt, and in their shame. And in so doing, he transforms their experience into something redemptive. And so the first person the risen Jesus appears to is his friend Mary Magdalene. And we read the story this morning during our worship singing time. And the risen Jesus finds Mary in her grief. And Mary is grieving, of course, because her friend and rabbi Jesus had been brutally killed. She was a firsthand witness of the horrific crucifixion of Jesus on Good Friday. And Mary is dealing with the trauma of watching the Roman guard, the Roman soldiers, inflict the worst imaginable pain on her friend. And while they're doing that, other people are looking on and they're mocking him. Mary Magdalene, we're told, is one of the few people who stayed at the cross while Jesus breathed his final breath. And although Scripture doesn't give us details of the depth of Mary's grief, that weekend. We can imagine how dark it must have felt for her. In John's gospel, chapter 20 and verse 1, it says this, early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And she said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So we're told that Mary Magdalene was on her way to Jesus' tomb to honor him by anointing his body with spices, anointing his body for burial. And when she arrives at the tomb, she finds it empty. And so she's distraught. So she runs to find her friends, Peter and John, and tells them that they've stolen his body. And so here she is, she's traumatized, she's tired, She's stricken by grief because not only had her friend been brutally executed, now it looks as if someone has stolen his body and has taken away his right for a proper Jewish burial. And John lets us know this, that when Mary arrives at the tomb, it was still dark. I think most of us, when we imagine the resurrection of Jesus, we don't imagine it happening under darkness. When we imagine the resurrection, we imagine the sun cresting over the hills and there's cascading beams of light illuminating the tomb and the stone that was rolled away is radiating with angelic brightness. But John tells us, no, it's not how it happened. It happened while it was still dark. Which means this, the darkness and grief that we experience in our lives doesn't disqualify us from experiencing Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Now, this is Easter. I grew up charismatic Pentecostal. When, I, when, you, when you come on Easter as a charismatic and Pentecostal, other people in the room help you preach. <laughs> so I'm going to preach that line again, and I'm going to have all my charismatic brothers and sisters in the room. Ian, you, you were there for me, bro. All my charismatic brothers and sisters in the room, you, you need to, you need to show, show that Jesus is alive. Let me say this again. 
the darkness and grief we experience in our own lives does not disqualify us from experiencing Jesus and the power of his resurrection. We're all going to be charismatic soon. I'll say this. In a strange way, when you and I are surrounded by despair and darkness, we've never been closer to the very first Easter Sunday. Because the resurrection happened while it was still dark. And the risen Jesus meets his friend Mary smack dab in the middle of her darkness, of her despair, because that's what the risen Jesus does. He finds his friends. Verse 14, she being Mary turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. See here, what we find is Mary is so heartbroken that she can't see the miracle that's happening right in front of her. She's too traumatized to see Jesus. All she sees is her heartache and her sorrow. Because that's what despair does, right? It blinds us. It blinds us to the presence of God. I'm wondering if you've ever been there. If you've ever been so fatigued and discouraged that you couldn't see God even if he was standing right in front of you. I remember when my son Joshua was just an infant, just several months old. It was a Sunday morning. I was preaching at my church in New York, and about 400 people that morning. And I'm in the middle of my sermon, and it was a great sermon. And my friend Justin walks up on the stage in the middle of my sermon, and he says, Adam, we need you at the back of the church. And I remember thinking, what are you, what are you talking about like, I'm in the middle of the sermon. And then he goes, it's, it's your son, Josh. Something's happened. And so it was a really awkward moment. I, I walked off the stage and walked to the back of the church to find my son, Joshua, all different shades of blue and purple. His eyes rolled back in his head, convulsing, foaming at the mouth. He was having his very first epileptic grand mal seizure. We rushed him to the hospital and I just remember being in shock that day. And the several days that followed, we were trying to meet with doctors and find medicines because what was happening is he had multiple, multiple seizures. And these seizures were lasting 15, 20 minutes apiece. And he wasn't pulling out of them. We had to give him injections to pull him out of the seizures. And for you, those of you who know about epilepsy, you you know how dangerous that can be to have a grand mal seizure for 15 and 20 minutes and and not be able to come out of it. It can be even, be even be deadly. And it was, I don't know how long it was, a week or two weeks of this. And man, my wife and I, we could not find Jesus anywhere that week. We, we, we were shell-shocked, traumatized, sick, fatigued. We, we were afraid to go to sleep at night because we thought in the middle of the night, if he has a seizure, he could die. 
And so one night, we're, my wife and I are laying in our, in our bed, and we just decided to pray. So we held hands, and, and, and this was my prayer. God, we can't do this anymore. We're fatigued. We're exhausted. We're traumatized. And we know that Josh belongs to you. We really, really want to take care of him and love him as long as you'll let us. So we just put him in your hands right now and trust you. And it's like a big weight just lifted off us. We slept for the first time in days. And I say that to say this. Even though we couldn't find Jesus that week, he found us in that room when we prayed that prayer. Because here's the thing. When our grief prevents us from seeing Jesus, it doesn't prevent Jesus from seeing us. And Jesus finds Mary in her grief when she couldn't find him. Jesus calls her name Mary, and with that one word, her eyes are open, her perspective changes, because she knows that Jesus is alive. She knows that Jesus is there with her. Listen, no matter how dark and full of despair your life feels, it's not too dark where Jesus can't find you and call your name because that's what the risen Jesus does. He finds his friends. The same chapter of John's gospel tells another story where the risen Jesus finds another one of his friends named Thomas. Now, if you know anything about Thomas, you know that he was one of the 12 disciples that Jesus chose. When we think of the disciple hierarchy, if there was one, we would place Thomas just barely above Judas, right? You have Judas who betrayed Jesus, and Thomas is right, you know, there. History gave Thomas the nickname Doubting Thomas, right? Because he's the one who didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead, He's the one who said, I won't believe until I can put my finger in his nail wounds and my hand into his side. We've heard it before, right? Don't be a doubting Thomas. But in fairness to Thomas, uh, the other disciples had seen Jesus on the day of his resurrection, but Thomas did not. He was not there with them when Jesus appeared. We don't know where Thomas was. We don't know why he was the one disciple who wasn't there when Jesus appeared to the disciples, but he wasn't. He missed it. I'm, I'm wondering if you've ever had something like that happen to you when, you know, you're supposed to hang out with all your friends, and you, the, the one time you don't, they have this amazing experience of a lifetime, <laughs> and it's all they want to talk about, and it was the one time you weren't there with them. Well, that's what happened with Thomas. Only he missed Jesus appearing in resurrected form. And you can imagine how Thomas must have felt because he was once on the inside, but now he's on the outside looking in. All the disciples want to talk about is how Jesus showed up and Thomas wasn't there. And I wonder if, if Thomas thought to himself, maybe I don't belong here. I wonder if he thought to himself, you know, Jesus... Obviously, Jesus didn't think it was important to find me. He found all these people, but he didn't find me. Maybe I'm not disciple material. Maybe when Jesus chose me, he made a mistake. 
In verse 26 of, of John chapter 20, we're told that the disciples were together in the same room, in the same house where Jesus first appeared to them on the day of his resurrection. And it's a week later now. And the door is locked because they're afraid the religious leaders are going to find them and kill them. But this time, Thomas is with them a week later. In verse 26, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then the next verse tells us this, that Jesus does something surprising. He engages Thomas in a one-on-one conversation. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. What we find here in this passage is that Jesus wasn't offended by Thomas' callous request to feel his wounds. He didn't scold Thomas for his insensitive comment. He invites Thomas to investigate. And so here's Jesus meeting Thomas in his skepticism, meeting Thomas in his doubt. And I think that tells us this, that Jesus can handle our own cynicism. Jesus can handle our own doubt. He can handle our deconstruction. He's a pretty secure guy, right? We think sometimes that our doubts, like, oh, man, this is, this is Jesus doesn't going to put up with me because I have doubts. Jesus meets Thomas in his skepticism and doubt. And what does Thomas do after Jesus finds him and, and reveals himself to him? Thomas responds by falling to his knees, and he says these words, my Lord and my God. And Thomas becomes the very first disciple of Jesus to refer to Jesus as God. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't James or John or Matthew or Luke. It was Thomas who referred to Jesus as God. Doubting Thomas. See, maybe you you find yourself today in a similar place as Thomas where you feel like your doubt, your deconstruction has, has distanced you from God and from your religious friends. You're here, but you're not sure you belong. Well, I have this word for you, that your doubt and skepticism doesn't intimidate Jesus. It doesn't bother Jesus. In fact, your doubt could be the very reason he seeks you out and finds you. Because that's what the risen Jesus does. The third and final resurrection story that I want to share this morning is also from John's gospel, a chapter later, chapter 21. And it involves Jesus' friend Peter. And Jesus meets Peter in his shame. Peter, of course, is the disciple who publicly declared that he would die for Jesus. And then only a few short hours later, deny him three times. And on the night of Jesus' arrest, Peter was standing by a fire pit trying to find out where they took Jesus, what they were going to do with Jesus. And he was recognized by three people at this fire pit. And out of fear, Peter denied that he knew Christ three times. And so in John chapter 21, even though Jesus had risen, Peter still can't seem to shake off his shame. And you, and you can understand why. Peter was, was the disciple that the other disciples looked up to. 
He was the one who Jesus changed his name from Simon to Peter, which means rock. Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my church. Peter was the first one who stepped out of the boat and walked on water with Jesus. Peter was one of the three disciples who spent the most time with Jesus. He was one of the leaders of the disciples. But by a fire pit one night, on the night of Jesus' arrest, Peter had an off moment. And even though Jesus had risen from the grave, Peter's failure was still haunting him. I'm wondering if you ever had a moment where you made a mistake and it followed you around and you thought it would define you the rest of your life. Maybe you messed up at work and it cost you that promotion and you thought to yourself, that's it, I'm never gonna reach my career goals now. Or maybe uh, you made a bad decision that wrecked a relationship. Or perhaps you had a, a momentary lapse of judgment and did something out of character and you felt like your, your reputation was ruined. Well, that's where Peter is in chapter 21 of John's gospel. He spent three years following Jesus and had had ideas and hopes that he would be a big part of Jesus' plans, but when the moment came to prove himself, he missed it. It's what we would call a defining moment in his life. But in John chapter 21, the risen Jesus shows up on a beach, and he finds Peter. And it's not just any beach. It's not a coincidence that Jesus showed up at this beach for Peter because this is the same beach where Jesus called Peter to follow him for the very first time. And so Jesus is bringing Peter back to where it all started, where their journey together started, where Peter's faith in Jesus started on this beach. And when Jesus arrives at the beach, he finds Peter and the other disciples out fishing. And so Jesus decides to start a fire and cook some breakfast. And he calls them to shore. Once Peter, of course, realizes that that's the risen Jesus, that's Jesus in resurrected form calling us to shore. Once he realizes this, he jumps out of the boat and swims to shore. And he leaves the disciples the task of rowing the boat back. And when Peter finally arrives to shore soaking wet, he finds Jesus by a fire pit cooking breakfast. Now, I'm guessing at this point in Peter's life, he didn't care much for fire pits. Right, because it was by a fire pit just days ago where he missed his moment, where he denied knowing Jesus three times. It's it's a painful reminder of his deepest failure. But John tells us in his gospel that Jesus had prepared this fire. And I believe it was for Peter. It's at this fire where Jesus questions Peter three times. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And he says, you know I do, Lord. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. And then a second time, he asked Peter the same question. Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you, you know I do, Lord. Jesus says, feed my lambs. And then a third time, Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter is so distraught that he'd asked them a third time. He says, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. And we can wonder, what was Jesus doing here? Was was he trying to rub Peter's failure in his face? 
I don't think he was. I think he's bringing Peter back to his place of pain. Not to punish him, but to heal him, to restore him. And the reason Jesus prepared this fire and he asked Peter the same question three times in a row was because it was by a fire pit where Peter had messed up. It was by a fire pit where where Peter denied knowing Jesus three times, and so Jesus creates this fire, and he asks Peter three questions. He's not trying to, to, to punish Peter. He's trying to set him free to bring him wholeness. It's his way of saying, Peter, you're letting your past define you, but it's time you let resurrection rewrite your story. The fire pit that that once haunted you is now going to be a place of forgiveness. It's going to be a place of healing. It's going to be a symbol of grace and forgiveness. And with these three questions, Jesus reinstates Peter. He erases his shame. He forgives him. He sends him out to be a shepherd and care for his people. It's Jesus' way of saying, Peter, I haven't given up on you, even though you've given up on yourself. It's his way of saying, Peter, Follow me like you did the first time when we were standing on this beach. And I wonder if if there are any of us here this morning in a similar boat as Peter. Where we did something that we believe disqualified us from following Jesus. And no matter how hard we try, we can't seem to shake our shame. And here's the word I have for you this, this morning. Nothing you could ever do will make Jesus love you any less. Nothing you could ever do will make Jesus love you any less. Nothing you could ever do will make Jesus love you any less. He won't allow your shame to keep you from him. He'll find you and restore you Because that's what the risen Jesus does. So I'm going to say a a prayer, and then as the band plays, I'm going to invite you to get up out of your seats and make your way to the communion table. Heavenly Father, we're gathered together on this Easter Sunday to, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And we recognize fully that we come today with our own grief and our own doubts and our own shame, but it's through the cross of Christ and his resurrection that erases it, because Jesus meets us in those places, because he finds his friends. Lord, I pray for my friends that are here today, Jesus, that you would find each one of them at that table that you prepared for them. God, that they would have the courage and the brave uh, uh, posture that they need to come and take the bread and the cup to meet with you, Jesus, right where they are, and that you would redeem, restore, forgive, make new, bring resurrection life to their hearts and their souls. Lord, it's the thing that you alone can do, no song can do, no sermon can do, no Easter potluck can do. It's the thing that only you can do. So we invite you to do that, Jesus. We thank you for finding us, even while it was still dark even while we were buried by our shame, and even when we were drowning in doubt. Because that's what the risen Jesus does. So thank you, God. Amen.
let's stand and we'll sing together. You're listening to the official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at www.wellchurchvt.com.